Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. And after many, many requests and uh, me finally pulling my finger out, I have got Mena Henselman on the podcast. And I kind of said that out of nowhere. I'm not sure. I, I know a lot of people struggle with your last name, Menno. So first name's easy, last name, maybe not so much. Was I okay? Yeah, uh, Menno Henselmans. Uh, yeah, it's e- easy enough. Last name, uh, if you want to get an international audience, <laughs> but uh, it is e- what it is. For someone who's English, it actually makes kind of sense when I read it. That's how I say it. So normally I, I completely screw up these last names. So yeah, thank you. Um, and to give you guys a bit of background, for those of you who don't know Menno, I think most of you will. Um, I think he's, I mean, made a fantastic name for himself and puts out amazing information. And I mean, our audience more than likely do know who Menno is, but let's give some background. So Menno is an online physique coach, uh, fitness model and scientific author. And I mean, we were just speaking, obviously you're doing a lot of conferences and seminars and um, I know you're a nomad, right? So you travel all the time and you don't like have a house that you have a mortgage on or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a digital nomad, as the the term goes, which means literally all the stuff that all my personal belongings in life fit into two suitcases. It's crazy. It literally living the the online coach lifestyle where you're sipping uh, pina coladas on the beach. <laughs> Not quite, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah. Many people have the idea that a uh, uh, digital nomad life is. Uh, you know, I, I do like to have a nice view, but it's more like I'm sitting inside with the air conditioning here. <laughs> and actually, I have a nice view of the Bay Area here, right here. Uh, but yeah, I'm working at my workstation uh, most of the time. Definitely uh, uh, don't have fewer work hours than most people. No, I bet you don't. I, 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 well, I was very surprised at how quickly you actually came back to me with your emails, which I was really happy with, quicker than I am. Um, so no, impressed. And uh he obviously kind of, you may have heard of Bayesian bodybuilding, kind of that method um, that has come from your background within kind of your science and statistics um, with economics and all of that, which I absolutely love because I I did economics at school and I, a lot of mm-hmm. it does apply to a lot of what the things we do and kind of, it's kind of the social science and the biological sciences, they kind of mix in some ways and I love applying them across uh, they might not always be applicable, but when you can find those roots, it's really cool. Um, so also, so you know, Menno has published many academic papers um, and obviously is a speaker um, and has been a speaker at some of the biggest fitness events. So you might know Body Power in the UK. You obviously came across, um, you came across to Body Power a few years ago now, right? Mm-hmm. So many yeah. of you may have been there and seen him there. Um, and if you are subscribed to Alan Aragon's research review, you may have seen Menno's um, name pop up in there as well. So uh, do you want to add anything to that, Menno? Or do you think we've given enough background to yourself? Good introduction. <laughs> Good. Um, so, yeah, all you really need to know is Google search Menno Henselman, you'll see he's jacked. And now you're going to hear how smart he is as well. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we touched on some things that maybe Menno... Um, has some interesting thoughts on that he hasn't touched on before on podcasts. Um, so the first question I actually have for you, Menno, is over the past year or so, or maybe even a couple of years, is there anything that you've changed your mind about? Um, and if anything kind of sticks out you to you particularly, and if you need like a topic, we can start on hypertrophy. If there is anything hypertrophy specific, our audience would love to hear that. Not many major things. Um, I think mostly when you're um, you're aware of all the science on a topic, and I think by now with the PT course we literally on many topics have all the literature on a certain topic, so uh, I think we're we're well informed in that regard. And then when a new study comes out, it's often the case that it may shift your perception in a certain direction, but it doesn't change much, or it changes the mechanism by which something we know something works, for example, but it doesn't really change much in practice and over time, some, sometimes uh, a new paradigm uh, occurs and you get a shift in uh, how you actually apply things with your clients. But that's rarely the case with uh, one study. Um, some things, um, I think high, mo- many benefits of high frequency training are, uh, are due to volume and uh, probably not so much um, increased MPS directly, at least 
uh, for most intermediate trainees. Um, I think for advanced trainees, high frequency is definitely the way to go, but uh, that's a topic I've talked about um, in many other podcasts and videos. Um, I'm becoming more of a fan of ad libitum dieting. Okay. I think, uh, yeah, especially as, uh, probably because uh, I see this in many coaches. Uh, when you start up as a coach, first you get the hardcore clientele, but many of them now, if they know my methods or they've done my PT course or if they've, they've been uh, clients already. So as you get more popular, you sort of become more mainstream and you get a lot more clients that are less motivated. So I think it makes sense and that also changes your um, your methods. And I think ad libitum dining is, is definitely more uh, uh, more suitable for many of them after they've become calorie aware at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a fun thing. Then a lot of small thing. I mean, now um, uh, we're working with the team on um, uh, sun exposure. That's like um, not super relevant for nutrition or training, but uh, sun, sun exposure is probably more harmful than, uh, than I thought originally. It used to be of the impression that as long as you don't get sunburned, it's mm-hmm. probably fine, but um, that definitely doesn't seem to be the case. There definitely seems to be a damage and increased risk of cancer quite a while before you actually get sunburned. Oh, wow. Now, you do need some sun exposure, especially for vitamin D production, but if you supplement vitamin D, which many people, especially in, in the UK, will probably want to do anyway because mm-hmm. it's just really damn hard to get enough sun exposure on a daily basis unless you work outdoors or something, then um, probably in terms of health benefits, you're not missing out, um, especially for skin health and risk of cancer. Um, so that's actually one of the conventional wisdoms that seems to um, um, uh, make a bit of sense. Often um, it's, you know, wishy-washy when it comes to uh, conventional wisdom. Um, what else? Not many major things. Like uh, like I said, it's all it's very small, um, small changes in methods. And no, I think that's... It's actually quite um, pleasant to hear. And I think a lot of the listeners might be like, oh, they're disappointed that you didn't kind of say that there was something that completely shifted your mind. But the fact that you started it with the the thing is, we know what works really. Like at the fundamental basics, we kind of know calories in, calories out, that Mm -hmm. sort of model. There are lots of kind of small intricacies to these. We kind of know a decently high amount of protein is going to be a good thing. Kind of the intricacies of kind of how high or low you go isn't going to make a huge world of difference. And then the same with training. But I think like you said with training, I think it is becoming more and more known that volume is becoming kind of a a key parameter. And then um, I think the intricacies of the the frequency is very interesting. Um, And kind of, yeah, I know you're doing lots of work on that and you've seen success with high frequency. I know, Mm -hmm. People have seen, I mean, Brad Schoenfeld's kind of talked about the two to three times a week. They've seen high success. So um, it's just interesting to kind of continually develop all of these things. Um, And it's actually interesting to do with the sunlight as well, because I guess, especially in the UK, at least, a lot of the uh, richer people with um, pale skin were seen to, that seemed to be a good thing. And kind of, um, I think in a lot of the Asian cultures kind of pale skin is seen as <clears throat> something to have and want. Um, it's to do with kind of, I guess, laboring and things like that. But it's funny how that then comes into health. Um, not that they were probably, suppl- well, there was no way they were supplementing with vitamin D. Um, and they mm. had the, the, the problems of, sc- um, of scurvy, uh, not scurvy, I've forgotten yeah. what the actual disease is, but um, yeah, it's yeah, funny. I think, yeah. Um, it is a bit of a tangent, but I think the uh, the appreciation of skin tone is uh, largely a socio-economical issue in that um, I can speak from having talked to many people now across the world in various countries where there are ver- various perceptions of whether they prefer white or dark skin, whereas um, in the Netherlands and many Western countries, first world countries, uh, having tan skin basically means uh, welfare because it means you can get out of this crap climate, go to a sunny beach in uh, the Bahamas and spend your day relaxing, yeah. right? So it means I have money. Whereas in, in here in Asia, for example, right now I'm in Thailand, uh, being tanned means you work outdoors, means you're probably not very wealthy. Yeah. Whereas um, having white skin means, you know, I can afford not to go out in the, in the scorching sun and just sit here at home, chill. And, uh, I have someone who carries my umbrella for me. Yeah. It's, it, it, I guess that makes 
good sense in it. I mean, that's again the kind of the the social, economical, and all of those things coming together. And um, no, mm. very interesting. Um, so my next question for you is: Is there anything? And I guess maybe this was already answered, but is there anything you've become more sure about over the last years? And if something that's very stood out to you as becoming even more pertinent, um, and kind of the, maybe some of those principles are just yes it's like it's almost unquestionable now i think uh, as you touched on volume volume being the primary determinant of uh progression that is definitely um, um an interesting one i think um i'm also becoming more uh convinced in the need to individualize now that um there isn't much research on this direct research uh, although there was one study which is now it's a year old or something a bit more maybe that found that non-responders which were uh, taken as a given in research first so there's this idea that uh, certain people just don't respond to strength training like mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what you do they just cannot gain strength for a muscle mass it's a genetic thing they don't have satellite cells for example some research finds but now it is a study in the endurance training but probably also applicable to training is that they found these people do not respond to that program but they may respond to a different program. And we have uh, a very interesting other study as well in rugby players. So just uh, that other study found they respond to more volume. So they were non-responders to a certain normal endurance program, but they did respond to more volume. So it wasn't the case that they're a non-responder and just they're genetically screwed. Mm -hmm. They just weren't doing a program that was optimal for them and they needed a higher volume program to stimulate good and get good gains. So. Uh, another study on rugby players, which is, I think, one of the most interesting studies in exercise science, found that um, some people actually gain more uh, weight, well, weight was the measure of muscle mass here, and strength on a power or a strength or an endurance type program than a traditional bodybuilding program. Hmm. So there, there are people who gain more muscle mass or weight and strength in when they do three sets of five compared to, I think it was four sets of ten. And there were even some people that gained more strength doing a power type workout. So they, they basically like, I think three sets of five at 60% of one RM or something, which is like barely workout for bodybuilding terms. And they actually did better. So it's not, you know, it's not the case that it's all over the place. It's clear that in that study, if you aggregate the results, I think about half of the sample responded best to the bodybuilding program. But most people would probably say, yeah, it's going to be 80%, maybe 90%. Yeah. And it was, it was only half. And then, uh, strength was the largest one thereafter, and then endurance and power were, were pretty equal. But the major implication there is that if you have a certain cookie cutter program for bodybuilding, in this case being four sets of 10, then half of your clientele is missing out. So that, that's, that's pretty huge. That's not um, you know, fine tuning, that's just um, a, a huge effect. Mm -hmm. I think there where people have this idea that they, they read uh, research and they're like, okay, so this uh, they see a meta-analysis, for example, and they look at the training volume and muscle mass and aggregates, and they're like, okay, so boom, 15 sets. That's the yeah. magic number. And that's the average. It's not just the average from the people in a study. It's the average from all the studies in the literature. So that's just average upon average, and there is huge variance either way there. And I think that's also why when people ask me, like, what is the optimal volume um, Well, I, in terms of sets per week uh, per muscle group? You can define a number of ways, but I like that definition. Mm -hmm. And I often say it's going to be in between 10 and 30, and it may even be wider in extreme cases. So one magic number is probably not going to cut it. And I think now the advances are going to be in how do we determine whether someone responds better to higher or lower volume and higher or lower carb is another thing where we got a lot more emerging research and also now research showing that there are actually genes that correlate with carbohydrate tolerance and that people feel better and may even lose more fat on high versus low carbohydrate diets. No, that's, I mean, because obviously when we're thinking about all of these things, individualization is normally kind of the last thing you'd come to. Um, you kind mm. of have all the, you make sure your program's nice and specific, you make sure there's progressive overload, you kind of get all those things sorted. And as a coach, that's very important to get into place. And then I guess it's then analyzing how is this person responding to it, just like you said with diet, kind of if you have them on a high carb diet, how are they responding? Are they Do they feel good? Are they losing weight at the pace you'd expect? How's their training performance? Same with training. A lot of people I think 
like you said, they just follow the four by 10 or they follow the generic recommendations out there. And most people, I think, are on the side of they want to do more rather than less because I think everyone just has the more is better. I think I even am at blame for that. Um, but it's important to realize that sometimes more is actually worse um, and less could be more for you um, and to pull that back. Um, do you have any kind of when you program for your clients and things like that, do you have any ways or systems that you identify kind of where their volume threshold should be? And do you kind of look to progress? Like, do you find that there's any telltale signs for a person, whether and whether you mm -hmm. think it's kind of like their slow twitch, fast twitch, their kind of level of advancement, does that play a role as well? Yeah, there are a few markers uh, that I like to look at. Um, one thing to start with, uh, which is probably really important, um, is that you do not want to look at many subjective indicators. And I think this is a mistake that many coaches make. Uh, and it's, it's all more difficult not to do when you have a good relation with your client. But what clients say they respond best to and what they actually respond best to can be very, very different. So there's actually a study on this in terms of high versus low carbohydrate where people were allowed to self-select a diet with high or low carbs and they found that there was no improvement. So you'd expect that you know, people have at least some sense, right? Which means if there is any genetic difference and they have at least some sense of direction of where they fall on that spectrum, then you would expect there at least to be a small benefit to self-selection, but there, there wasn't any. So, and I think that really corresponds with many things we see in literature in terms of people under or over reporting energy intake, uh, under reporting sleep, um, how many hours of sleep they're getting, over-reporting activity level. Uh, Self-report is just a really unreliable measure of well, almost anything in fitness and nutrition. And I think with training, that is also very much the case. I've, I've dealt with my fair case of uh, hard gainers that were very adverse to doing higher volume programs, but that it was clearly what they needed to get to the next level. Mm -hmm. They just, and I think that for many people, that is the case. Low volume can work well up to a certain point, but once you're you know, a firmly entrenched intermediate trainee, then uh, one set per uh, exercise or per muscle group per day or something is, is probably not going to cut it. And you're going to need to up the volume to get to that next level. And that's something that we don't see yet in research. But I think there are actually some threshold effects. And uh, Mike Israel talks about this as minimum effective volume in that you need a certain volume to actually cause further adaptation. And you're maybe doing a certain volume that in research we see will work, you know, and then they say, well, this will work 80% as well as doing the higher volume. But what they don't know is that once you are at a certain level of advancement, that volume is just going to be enough to maintain, which means the difference between that volume and uh, doing maybe double the volume isn't the difference between gaining 80% and 100%. It's the difference between maintaining and gaining 20%. So that's actually, uh, then, the, you know, in relative terms, the difference becomes huge. So um, I think that that's very important to take into account. What you do want to pay attention to is objective progression. That is by far the most important thing. And that is the key principle of my program design in almost all regards. And that you look at someone's actual progression, you need good indications of someone's body composition. And there are various ways to do that. Calipers, waist circumference or other circumference, uh, by a scale, you know, you need to know the limitations of the tool you have, but yeah. you need some measure of body fat percentage and weight. Weight is probably something you always want to track, uh, unless it's for psychological reasons that you don't. And uh, strength development. You need to have a program which clearly has certain benchmark lifts, as I call them. Yeah. And uh, I think that is also a mistake where people uh, switch program every four weeks or so. And I think there are other issues with this approach as well. But one of the key issues is that you don't know if you're actually progressing. I mean, any coach can get a client to get better at a new program for four weeks. I have you do a new exercise. And even if it's just due to neural adaptations, you're going to gain probably four weeks worth of strength on that exercise. And it doesn't mean you have any muscle growth at all. So I think you, you definitely need long-term benchmarks because if you can take a power lifter that has experience with the bench press for three years and you can put 10% on his or her bench, that's real progression. You cannot fake that with just um, some short-term neural adaptations or whatever. That's, that's good progression. So uh, that is the most important thing to look at. Some other things that uh, I like to look at, uh, work capacity. I found that, um, again, largely anecdotal because there mm -hmm. isn't much research on this. 
But work capacity varies greatly uh, per individual. And in terms of uh, our context, work capacity is generally most practically defined as uh, the repetition drop-off across sets. Yeah. So if someone's, someone's work capacity is really good, and you see this in women often, then maybe they do a set of 12, and then it's 12 again, and then it's 11 and then 10. Yeah. Whereas my work capacity is pretty crappy. And uh, it's not uncommon, it goes from like 12 to 6 to 3. <laughs> and uh, in my experience, and at least there's gender research um, supporting this, people with higher work capacities tend to uh, tolerate higher training volumes better. Yeah. And it makes sense if you think about what work capacity really is, because work capacity is basically a measure of the amount of neuromuscular fatigue. It's actually sometimes used in exercise science as a fatigue index. So if your reps go like 12, 12, 12, 12, that means unless you're, you're planning to only hit failure or something on the, the last set of 12, but if you're going, say, one rep to failure or you're trying to go to failure and the reps don't decrease, that in principle means there isn't any neuromuscular fatigue because performance is the same. And sometimes you even see in clients that the reps go up, and that means that either they rested a lot more than allotted, uh, they didn't warm up properly for the first set, or they weren't training very hard on the set before that. So, because the only thing that should happen when you train a muscle is fatigue, with rare exceptions of post-activation potentiation. Normally you train a muscle, it gets fatigued, increases performance, Afterwards, it recovers, super compensates. That's how you get bigger or stronger. So the, the normal scenario is there should be a re repetition drop-off across sets. And the, the amount, the magnitude of that drop-off can be used as a benchmark of fatigue, yeah. therefore a benchmark of how much more stress they may or may not tolerate. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, um, you know, again, not much direct research on this, but uh, a nice measure I found to uh, work pretty well in my clients. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. And actually... That last point you talked about, it sounds very much like some progression models out there that are like triple progression. So you stick with a load until you can repeat the same number of reps of the upper end of a mm. rep range for a number of sets. And then you increase once you've kind of made that. And that works quite nicely with that model. And I can certainly agree. I've seen women kind of, they can just, they seem to be able to just repeat top set no, uh, rep counts all the time. Um, and even have you found different muscle groups respond differently in that kind of the work capacity of different muscle groups kind of have different drop-off rates and things like that. And I guess exercises mm -hmm. will as well inherently. Yeah, it's, I think it's more related to exercise than muscle group, interestingly enough. So you would expect this to um, correlate with muscle fiber type, but I found that that's not necessarily the case. Mm. And there's also research indicating that uh, muscle fiber type per se doesn't correlate well with how many repetitions you can do at a given intensity. So some research finds capillary density is more important, for example. And uh, we also have research that the uh, uh, ACTN gene is um, important in this regard and has uh, a relation. It's actually a really cool study that looked at people with this gene, which also is correlated with more fast twitch muscles. They respond better to lower volumes, or at least seem to in that study. And uh, people with a more endurance-type genetic profile respond better to higher volumes. So there's probably other factors, the amount of satellite cells you have, capillary density, uh, certain genetic factors that also play a role in together as a whole. Muscle fiber type, in terms of type 2A, type 2X fibers, uh, only plays a small role. Um, so I think that is um, uh, very interesting. Mm -hmm. No, certainly. And... I also wanted to bring back to, you talked about strength being a good marker on kind of some baseline lifts. And when you're talking about strength, are you talking about kind of a 10 rep max or eight rep max? Or are you talking about like three, one rep maxes? Where are we benchmarking that? Um, just so the listeners kind of have an idea of what to be kind of looking at for their progress. Yeah, you can you can use various things in the program. Um, I like to use any kind of what what the program currently is. So if your program calls for uh, 8RM, mm -hmm. uh, bench press for sets of eight, then your 8RM is probably a good benchmark to have. If your program alternates between more rep ranges and has more block periodization or whatever, then you can use some surrogate measures. I like to use estimated 1RM in that case. So um, then you, have, you still have a good measure, even though it's not the same exact same measure across mm -hmm. time. And you, and this is, oh, sorry. Yeah, this is definitely where the, the barbell lifts shine. Yeah. Uh, for me, for example, when, I, when I'm traveling, 
Um, the, the barbell lifts are just different gyms, different equipment. Um, it all doesn't matter as much for those uh, in contrast to machines and uh, even the exact same machine from the same manufacturer, uh, put two of them next to each other, it can have uh, pretty big differences just to difference in the traction, uh, uh, wear and tear on the cable, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that, the, you know, the power lifts are, are really overrated for bodybuilding in general, but yeah. um, I mean, they're, they're great exercises, don't get me wrong, but you know, they, they don't really live up to the hype as being some sort of super magical exercise that you have to do in your program. Um, but uh, they, they really do shine when it comes to benchmarking strength levels. Mm -hmm. No, perfect. Um, no, that's really nice. And I think you've answered those two questions really, really well. And then kind of the second half of the interview is what I wanted to talk about because I've recently just competed and I was doing lots of research as always when you're looking into peaking methods <laughs> and kind of these different strategies and approaches. And um, I came across your piece in Alan Aragon's research review where it was very short. Um, it was only a couple of paragraphs and I thought it's something you haven't talked about before. I know you work with a lot of highly competitive physique athletes and I think it would be really interesting to hear your take because I think it was quite different or at least it looked fairly, there were some differences there to other people's approaches and um, mm -hmm. and obviously you're a competitor yourself so I'd love to hear more about this. Um, so yeah, when it comes to peak week, I don't know where you want to start with it. You might already have kind of some thoughts that you want to make sure that you get out there so I'll let you just kind of go along and I, I might come in with some questions sure yeah my approach to peak week is um, uh, very very difficult because what many coaches have sort of their model but um, I start with a certain template which is more like a series of tests and based on those so you have all these different uh, components the water cut the carb load, depletion workout, depletion workout and carb load basically go hand in hand. Um, water cut, yes or no, to what extent do you use diuretics, that kind of thing. Um, and the, the timing in relation to each other, uh, especially when someone has international flights and um, or different times for the weigh-in. You have to make a certain weight that kind of screws things up sometimes. Uh, time between the pre-judging and finals. Uh, and the shit load. So, yeah. Uh, eloquently termed by bodybuilders <laughs> as uh, sort of the, the final meal that you consume uh, before you go on stage. Well, some people use the term shitload for the, the meal the night before, but I think that's actually better termed as a carb load. Uh, the shitload, uh, as I define it at least, is uh, the meal that you consume pretty much right before you go on stage, like within four hours. I think that time frame is um, useful because there, there won't be any effect after that and may even be negative because uh, what you want with the shitload is to increase the pump and vascularity. You're not going to actually get um, amount of massive glycogen storage or intramuscular water retention or, or anything really that changes uh, the amount of lean body mass or body fat percentage, but you can still get uh, a better pump uh, and more vascularity. So women often do not want to do this. In bodybuilding, maybe bikini body fitness figure, definitely not because vascularity is actually penalized instead of uh, awarded points for. So uh, it's mostly something for men. Mm -hmm. And um, people really vary to an enormous extent for uh, almost all of these factors. So the shitload, the water cut, and the carb load. And the carb load is the only thing I would say is pretty consistent uh, across individuals. The only thing that really differs is how aggressive do you want to load. Right. Um, so I can go through all of them if you want. Um, yeah, um, I, mean, to, I mean, are you manipulating these over what that one week so you're not doing anything kind of two weeks out or you can yeah go through each stage would be amazing mm -hmm. so yeah i uh, usually reserve the, the peak week for literally a week mm -hmm. uh, i think that um is enough sometimes it's more like five days and all right so let, let's work backwards so the the shitload is usually what works best to increase vascularity is something that is very uh, vasodilatory. So it, it opens the blood vessels, uh, gets the blood flowing, but the inter-individual variability is huge. So what you would expect from the research is the meal has to be high sodium, high carbohydrates, um, vitamin B3 maybe, uh, maybe some alcohol, chili powder, uh, cayenne peppers, these things that all work well, uh, chocolate, uh, fiobromin possibly, and probably low fat. If you do want fat, then there should be omega freeze or something to, um, to cause a vasodilative effect. Definitely not saturated fat. However, 
some people just respond best by far uh, with actual shitloading, which is where the name comes from, like Snickers or Mars bars. Right. Which, I mean, they take the boxes in terms of the, um, uh, the syrup and the chocolate uh, and being generally high carb and reasonably high sodium, I guess. Um, but they, they do not work very well in terms of phosphorylation uh, at all, according to science. So there's definitely a mismatch there between what we see actually works in the real world and what's supposed to work scientifically. So um, that's just something you, you have to trial with uh, your athletes. And that's why I go through a series of tests there rather than have, you know, one kind of method. So I generally start them with what science says should work. And then you often see that uh, literally about as often as not that uh, it doesn't work, mm -hmm. which means that some people, they just lose all their vascularity when they start consuming carbs. And um, for other people, mostly it works positive. I think high carb, high sodium is works for most people, but definitely mm -hmm. not everyone, especially most men. Uh, but women don't need the uh, shitload much anyway. Uh, and then yet yeah, try out the actual shitload and uh, produce some, some variants of that. And then you see what works for that. Um, working back from that, you have the water cut. Now this is really tricky. So the water cut, the purpose of that is dehydration. And dehydration basically, or specifically what you ideally want is subcutaneous water dehydration, which means get rid of the water that's under the skin, but you retain uh, muscle water content. So you don't deflate the muscles, but you get a dry, grainy, ripped, shredded, dry look. It's, it's literally dryness in this mm -hmm. case. Yeah, so dry is one of the uh, bodybuilding adjectives that's oh, actually dry. literally true. You, you want a dry look. But you cannot tell the body to just get rid of the subcutaneous water and keep the muscle water. So often what you find that people have a certain dehydration sweet spot and um, there are various ways to achieve that. You can uh, go high water intake, high sodium intake, cut out water sodium. You can do it with both or just one of the other. Um, a safe method is just going really high in water, but this won't actually cause dehydration. All this does is it gets rid of any excess water retention, like bloating. So it's kind of a safe method, but it's also not going to make a major difference for your physique. Now, most people have a dehydration sweet spot. I find that it's lower for women than men. For men, it's probably because of the loss of muscle size, mm -hmm. where the increased muscle definition is worth it in terms of um, the decreased muscle mass that you have. Uh, but there's a very narrow optimum in that if you dehydrate too much, people cannot have a good pump anymore. They look flat, deflated, they can't pose well, they may cramp up on stage, all no bueno. So you can compensate for this a little with the shitload, but uh, some, sometimes it's just too little too late. Right. So you again, this is something you, you need to test to find that sweet spot. And sometimes it's just people, especially men, they don't dehydrate well at all. And uh, all that seems to happen is they lose the muscle fullness. And I think it's also because men, they at contest shape, naturals at least, they have very low estrogen levels, which have... Uh, means you have very low water retention levels. Estrogen, specifically estradiol, is uh, quite tightly correlated with water retention, which is also the cause of many myths around steroid use where estrogen causes fat gain or whatever. No, it causes bloating. Um, and for, for that reason, most natural male competitors are naturally very dry already when they approach contest shape. So for women, it's, it's more tricky and dehydration um, often produces more favorable effects. Also because for men, women often, uh, the relative weighing of leanness is higher than that of mass. Whereas for men, uh, there's actually a study on this of what judges prefer. And it was also leanness that was by far the most important thing. Mm. But, you know, obviously men do need a lot more mass than women. All right, so again, something you want to test and there, there is a sweet spot, but definitely if I had to say, well, what is my model? It's like yeah. there is nothing because uh, it varies enormously per client and then before that you have the carb load and this is one of the things that i do with most individuals um i i literally cannot remember the last time a man did not oh yeah there was one a few months ago but like the majority of men respond well to carb loading mm -hmm. women mm, not so much so sometimes with women what you see and literature supports this is that women don't carb load well women have a very uh glycogen uh, efficient or uh, glycogen sparing metabolism, which means right. they don't use as much glucose and glycogen as men do. And they have higher levels of fat oxidation. They rely more on fat. Um, they also don't need as much protein, uh, according to some research for that purpose. 
Now, interesting in meta-analysis, what didn't reach statistical significance, but found out was an 11% difference based on nitrogen balance uh, in reduced protein requirements. Now, I generally don't recommend actually reduced protein, but, uh, you know, it's still interesting. Mm -hmm. Slight tangent. Um, uh, in terms of the carb load, some research finds that women do carb load, it's kind of analogous to uh, what we discussed earlier with training volume and non-response, is that they do respond, but there seems to be a threshold of about 8 gram carb per kilogram body weight, which is okay. a pretty hefty amount of carbohydrates that they need before they actually supercompensate glycogen stores, which is what you want from a carb load, supercompensated glycogen stores, which increase muscle fullness. Mm -hmm. And there's also some research supporting this in men, because there's one study that looked at the effect of um, supposedly looking at the bodybuilding practice of carb loading. Uh, but what they did is they just went from um, three days of low-carb dieting to three days of high-carb dieting, but they didn't change energy intake. And then they concluded right. that carb loading was ineffective to increase the muscle girth of bodybuilders. But the crucial thing with a carb load is that you have to be in energy surplus because you want massive storage of glycogen. And you can get some of that if you're just increasing your carbohydrate intake and diet. But with uh, a true carb load, you're talking about one or two kilos of weight gain at least. Right. So the maximum glycogen storage capacity of humans seems to be about um, 15 gram per kilogram body weight, mm -hmm. which is just massive. Yeah. And often you can load um, in a male competitor, which is kind of scary, especially for first time uh, coaches that do this and also for the competitors themselves. But sometimes you're talking about literally a kilo of carbs. And uh, that's what's needed to truly super compensate glycogen stores, which means you literally full, fill all the muscles to the brim with glycogen. And that shows us a lot full, uh, literally a lot fuller yeah. muscle look. And uh, you're literally talking about like two, maybe more kilos of body weight gain that that looks like lean body mass. In fact, it looks a bit more impressive than that because it's not just contractile tissue, but it literally makes the, the muscle push against the skin more. So it's really like it's the muscles about to pop out. And if you can combine that with dryness, you can get a pretty notable difference in that last week in someone's physique. Mm -hmm. But the danger with the carb load is when you start shoveling in a kilo of carbohydrate in some individual, then often they get bloated as hell. And that means you need to get that bloating off again. So you need to often, what I like to do is wait a day or two, unless someone, you find that someone doesn't respond well to water cutting and responds exceptionally favorably to carb loading. Mm -hmm. So I just did the concept prep of uh, Fran Pignati, for example, um, who almost got his pro card, second place, just scored, lost, a, one, I think it was two, three points short or something, won his class, just missed the overall, uh, but great conditioning. and. Um, his, his carb load was basically, uh, he just started looking better and better and he woke up the next day and still completely shredded. So there was no bloating, nothing. It was just like you shovel in the carbs and it all goes into the muscles, no bloating, just looks better, feels better. So that's how you often uh, know that someone responds really well. Whereas sometimes with women especially, it's like you start shoving in the carbs and it's just they wake up puffy eyes, bloated, oh. swollen ankles and just, you know, digestive symptoms. And no bueno, mm -hmm. <laughs> and not that much fuller in terms of muscle mass either. So uh, you need to either get that bloating back off again afterwards, or uh, they just they just don't respond very well. Mm -hmm. uh, FODMAP intake is also something to take into account. So uh, FODMAPs are certain carbohydrates that are hard to digest uh, in humans, and most people have some food intolerances, uh, certain types of carbohydrates, uh, polyols, sugar, alcohols, fructans, something like that. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's fr fructose fruit sugar, lactose intolerance is a common one, wheat intolerance. Uh, many people that think they are wheat intolerant or gluten intolerant or actually have a FODMAP intolerance. Right. Uh, based on some uh, studies and also definitely my experience. So a uh, low FODMAP diet is definitely something I recommend uh, for the peak week to ensure that there just isn't any bloating, digestive upset, abdominal distension and the like. Um, yeah, and then based on these trials, you basically put everything together and you get a certain peak week that fits that individual. So uh, definitely something where I'd say, you know, like, I'd love to give like a, a schematic of this is how it looks like, but yeah. it's, it's literally, it varies a lot. So I know that, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Cliff, Cliff, Cliff. Oh yeah, Cliff Olsen. Cliff Wilson, right. Uh, good coach, produces a lot of great results with carb backloading. 
and my method and his method, or my method basically collapses to his, if you find that an individual responds very well to carb loading and doesn't respond well at all to water loading, because right. then that the water cut is basically cut out and you just carb load all the way into the show. So yeah, you get different um, methods for different individuals. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a really, I mean, you repeated it throughout, but it's, you have to come back to that individualization of, of all of these things. But when it's something like a peak week, when it is so, there are so many different components to it. There are so many different factors going into it. It can be quite difficult, especially if you haven't tested it. Um, what I'm interested about actually about that is when you are, how do you test it? Because obviously um, a peak week, right? a lot of the time it's a lot of carbohydrates so and you're changing a lot of things so it could impact kind of days later kind of what's going on um and training obviously i i'm not sure you didn't touch on training but i'm sure that maybe mm. changes slightly so yeah how do you go about um if you maybe touch on what you do with training and then touch on how you go about testing it yeah generally what i do um is i try each individual component first in isolation so with dehydration i first just uh, dehydrate them the day before a rest day, for example, and then go through the water cut and take pictures along the way and take note of their urine color. Urine color is a pretty good measure of uh, dehydration status. Okay. Uh, take note of whether they're cramping up, if they can still pose well, uh, but mostly look at the pictures, make sure you have replicable lighting. <clears throat> this is unfortunately something that many competitors will not be able to do. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to make do of what you got. but. Um, yeah, you, you literally try it and you see you over dehydrate them and you see, okay, at which point do we think you actually look better? Uh, and sometimes it's just like it gets worse and worse and then you know, okay, no water cutting for you. Mm -hmm. And then uh, carb load also, uh, you, you start with a depletion workout, which is like super high volume, uh, massive glycogen depletion, because uh, basically the further you dump glycogen stores, the harder they can bounce back up. And um, uh, that's that's a slightly different workout so it's higher volume you need to do very little muscle damage i think this is where many people go wrong they just up the volume a lot but strength training doesn't deplete glycogen stores very effectively because of the eccentric muscle component and during eccentric muscle action uh, the myosin actin bridges in muscle tissue uh, they are cleaved mechanically which doesn't produce doesn't require energy expenditure so it's only during concentric muscle actions that there is a uh, biochemical need to do the cleaving, which produces very high levels of energy expenditure, ah. which is why something like um, ergometer rowing or cycling or um, anything that's concentric only in terms of modality for the muscle uh, has a much higher energy expenditure and burns off glycogen at a several fold greater rate. So glycogen depletion during strength training exercise, in contrast to what many high carb uh, advocates uh, like to believe is often 90 to 39 percent. I think the highest ever recorded was 39 percent in research. And then people say, ah, oh, it's just, it's just, you know, these people that do uh, untrained individuals that do a few sets on leg extension. But they've actually looked at competitive bodybuilders, uh, two studies in the 90s doing their regular bodybuilding workouts. Mm -hmm. And these guys only scored 21 and 28 percent depletion, I think. So, wow. Uh, I mean, even if they doubled their volume and then you still have diminishing returns, you wouldn't go, you would still wouldn't be halfway depleted. Whereas uh, some research finds you're about halfway through your glycogen stores in just two all out sprints on a cycle ergometer of 30 seconds, which is just one minute total work and bomb, you're, you're halfway gone through your glycogen stores. So you definitely want to rely more on cardio uh, for that workout. And after that, you don't want to train anymore because once you have the glycogen super compensated, it will stay in your muscles because right. uh, muscle doesn't have the enzyme to get that glycogen and make it used by the liver. Um, so once it's in there, it stays. And the only thing that will get it out in principle is high intensity exercise. Right. So you also want to uh, take it easy on your posing routine. Don't get overzealous because um, you'll deplete uh, that super compensated glycogen. Uh, other than that, up until that point, you can pretty much train uh, as normal. Um, some people like to cut out lag work uh, like a week in advance. I found that it's probably because of my high frequency training methods uh, for most competitors that that is not needed mm -hmm. because you just recover a lot faster on a given high frequency training program and the volume per session isn't as high. And uh, with most high frequency training programs, if done effectively, uh, you don't want high levels of muscle damage. Otherwise, you couldn't handle that yeah. high frequency anyway. So most of my uh, programs 
induce low rates of muscle damage and don't have a lot of high volume per session, which means I can keep the volume in there uh, until the depletion workout. Okay. And then there's often at least one day afterwards anyway, uh, which should be enough for uh, muscular edema to dissipate because that's the issue with uh, lag workouts. Uh, the, the idea is that lag training because um, it's kind of a concave muscle. You can sort of uh, differentiate between concave and convex muscles, whereas uh, convex muscles are like they have to be round, like the delts, and concave muscles they have more the the, the inward definition, yeah. striations, and uh, the different heads of the quads. So uh, anything that produces swelling, even the pump, sometimes can actually reduce the amount of muscle definition that you have. So there, these are also muscle groups you don't want to pump up, and you don't want them to have edema, which is water retention uh, associated with muscle damage, um, when you go on stage because it, it literally. Uh, blobs up the uh, muscle definition. You want them to be nice and dry, and um, but you don't need to detrain them. That's basically yeah. um, the, the other side of the coin. So I think many people, at first time coaches do two weeks. Wow. And that's just, in two weeks, I mean, you're going to get detraining. An advanced individual in a deficit at a super low body fat percentage with probably um, low normal testosterone levels and the like, uh, two weeks without training, you're, you're going to lose muscle mass. Okay. So that's not, that's excessive. But, um, yeah, there, there may be something to it. And uh, there's definitely something to it in that you don't want to pump up all muscle groups. That's actually yeah. another component I haven't discussed. Uh, the pump up also varies. So, um, you know, di different exercises work for different individuals. Um, but mostly it's, it's mid-range partials, high reps uh, that work best, low rest intervals. Um, you know, most people have a pretty good idea of what gets them a good pump. And... Um, um, you do need to try uh, which muscles you want to pump up and which you don't because you get that you get more muscle size but it can decrease muscle definition mm -hmm. and uh, especially in women it and depending on your body fat percentage so women if they are say competing in bikini and they don't have very large quads then you probably do want to pump up the quads to give them that extra sweep because there isn't much definition in the separate heads anyway Whereas if you've got a male bodybuilder with tone plots like quads oh. and excellent muscle definitions, no pump up because then they just look bloated and swollen and grotesque. Yeah. So um, you, you also need to take that into account. Basically, what I always like to do with these things, also, you know, with, with women in particular, with bikini, sometimes you don't want to carb load certain muscles um, or you don't want to deplete them then basically because if you still do a carb load because you don't want them to be bigger. So, mm -hmm. so Actually, pretty common pro problem with my bikini competitors is they, they basically get too big for the class. But for um, social or competitive reasons or financial reasons, they still want to compete in bikini because it's a more popular category and yeah. more socially acceptable, etc. So then often, sometimes, or at least you want to actually make them look smaller or certain muscle groups you want to emphasize, but others you actually want to de-emphasize. So... You want to, what I always recommend is think of how they look now, compare that to the prototypical perfection of judging criteria, and then see what needs to change, what needs to do, to, what needs to happen to the delts, what needs to happen to the glutes, etc. And um, based on that, you know what to do uh, with your peak week, what needs to get pumped up, depleted, carb loaded, etc. So again, something you really just um, need to look at the individual, because mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you apply the bodybuilding type method to a bikini competitor, they're, they're going to appear all vascular and certain muscle groups may be out of proportion, etc. It's not, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's interesting you talked about because the depletion, um, I know if you don't deplete a muscle group, then it's not going to super compensate either. So you, know, you have to get that full body depletion done or you can even do that method similar to the pump up. Don't pump, don't deplete a muscle group that you want to remain kind of a bit smaller. Um, do you do anything else with the depletion? Exactly. Do you deplete your carbohydrates as well or are they already, you thinking they're dieted down, they're already fairly depleted? I, I do go low carb, yeah. Uh, sometimes it's not really possible to go very uh, much lower in carbs without them going ketogenic, mm -hmm. which I generally don't want uh, okay. because of the possible mental effects. Um, like if they're used to it, it's fine. And if they're already in ketosis, then, you know, they're as depleted as they're going to get. Um, or actually, it might be detrimental because they can get keto adapted and have higher glycogen storage levels again. But uh, there's just not much room for leeway then. But the peak week is the last time you want to trial someone yeah see what happens when you go into ketosis so 
Uh, I generally restrict carbohydrate intake to about 100 gram per day, uh, but not lower than that, depending on what the initial carbohydrate intake was. Uh, for three days or so, that, that's been found to uh, induce a significant level of depletion, uh, but nothing like the depletion workout where you really try to hit the wall, as endurance athletes call it. Oh, yeah. Uh, which literally feels like being unable to move and the depletion workout is, is absolutely grueling. So, And then uh, I think something we haven't touched on, which is probably important, um, you, well, you did talk a little bit about sodium and when you do the shit load kind of it's normally a high sodium food do you do anything else with sodium during the, the, the period of time because obviously if you're manipulating water i guess you might have to do something with your sodium as well or do you keep it level all right so sodium is interesting because um sodium is one of those things you want to have in the carb load but uh, if you want serious uh water cutting then you need to take it out so you need to go low sodium or even skip, take sodium out altogether. And if you want a certain uh, serious amount of uh, dehydration, you need to establish a very high sodium turnover first. So you have to go high sodium for at least three days, and then you basically cut out all sodium or go super low sodium, boom, just like that. And then you can actually achieve uh, a decrease in sodium stores in the body because homeostasis is extremely efficient when it comes to water and sodium levels but you can get a little bit of extra sodium flushing basically once your body's used to excreting very high amounts of sodium and then suddenly it doesn't have the sodium anymore, it will over um, excrete a bit of sodium. Mm -hmm. So you can do that with sodium and water if you want very uh, or pretty high level dehydration. And then afterwards you have to add in diuretics because the body's gonna need some extra stimulus to uh, get dehydrated further. And then one thing I like to use, because it's natural, it's legal, it's available, uh, and it's as potent as Lasix, according to one study, is dandelion leaf. And you need the leaf, not the root. The root is less potent. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that, that's um, if you want to go with heavy dehydration. And what uh, a big mistake, which I think is definitely um, just a no-no for pretty much everyone, is trying to carb load and then water cut at the same time. Mm -hmm. because the idea is that you pull the water from uh, under the skin and pull it into the muscles. But if you cut out sodium when you're carb loading, a big problem there is that glucose transport in the body relies in part on, as the name suggests, sodium-dependent transporters. Mm -hmm. And um, so without sodium, there's a certain ratio of sodium to glucose that they need. I think it's like one-to-one -one or two-to-one for uh, most transporters. Right. And um, without the sodium, they cannot transport glucose into the muscle or sometimes they, they may even have trouble um, absorbing it from the gut. So uh, you won't carb load effectively on a low sodium diet. And same with water, because after the depletion workout, you're actually gonna have low muscle water content. And then if you, um, one study's actually looked at this, what happens if you try to carb load, but you don't get the water in, you're gonna lose even more muscle water content. So it's not the case that, um, the body's like, oh, let's pull that water from plasma and your organs and uh, pump it into your muscles, get nice and full. Uh, the body's like, no, we're going to keep plasma water and uh, the muscles can dehydrate a bit further. Mm -hmm. So uh, you definitely need the water and the sodium in there uh, during the carb load before you take them out. So that's why also like backloading, it only works if you don't want to dehydrate them. Because mm -hmm. um, if, if you do, you, you definitely need to separate them. Mm -hmm. now, other than that, I think sodium uh, and especially potassium is just incredibly risky to uh, mess around with a lot. Right. Um, if you do anything more fancy than high, low, or just go low, then uh, it's probably doomed to fail. And especially potassium is just incredibly risky. Uh, irregular heart rhythm is a very common complaint. Uh, in fact, many people have this idea that steroids are the bad guy in bodybuilding. Try diuretics. Almost all deaths, uh, people collapsing on stage in bodybuilding, almost all diuretics. So the problem with many diuretics, uh, like Lasix mm -hmm. and uh, many others, indiscriminately uh, remove electrolytes from the body. So you know you can get low sodium, and the body's pretty fine with that. But once you cut out potassium stores, calcium, magnesium, then uh, you're gonna your heart's gonna have difficulty functioning, and that's just absolute no cigar when it comes to. Um, your health, let alone, you know, providing an energetic, uh, nice appearance on stage where you're, you're uh, you make an overall nice appearance. Because I think that's also one thing, like you have the whole peak week and perfecting your physique, but it's also incredibly important that you uh, can actually pose well and you yes. feel good. So 
Uh, often in the case of dehydration in particular, when I'm like, mm, I don't think this guy is going to pull it off. If, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I feel, I get the extra stretch coming in. I feel a bit faint, but I can handle it. Then I'm like, mm, that's probably not going to be your best impression on stage, mm -hmm. uh, especially for the lighter classes. I mean, bodybuilding, you can sort of go get away with the robot smile and be like, yeah. right all the time and um, just do, hit the poses really well. But especially for bikini and the like, like they want the beach yeah. model look. They want someone that's uh, on stage and just looks like they're enjoying life. They're a role model. These are the kind of individuals, especially for like the WBFF. They want someone that, that shines on yeah. stage and that you can put in a photo shoot, put on the cover of a magazine and other people will be like, that's what I want to be. So they're not looking just for sh shredded muscles, huge size and everything. They're, they're looking for a nice person, someone, a role model. Mm -hmm. And if you feel like shit and you haven't drank water in 24 hours and you know, you're, you're on that stage and you're just focused on hitting your poses and you're like getting this half-assed smile, which um, uh, research actually, research shows people are really, really good at uh, recognizing a Duchenne, Duchenne smile as oh, it's yeah. called. So if you have a fake smile, then people will almost always be able to tell, <laughs> even if they're like, oh, it's a nice fake smile, but still they know that it's not a real <laughs> smile. So. Um, yeah, that is just really important. And sometimes all of these things go out the water and, um, or go out, yeah, literally people, uh, should just keep the water in and not obsess too much over the peak week yeah. and just do what they feel best at or find a happy medium there. Mm -hmm. No, I think you brought it back to a really important point that I always come back to when I think about these and what I came to a bit of a conclusion at the end of my prep was that. There's so much to go into a peak week potentially and there's so many different things you can manipulate, but is it always worth the potential risk or costs that can come with it? Um, and I've had clients where it's been like, we can do this, this and this, but how are you feeling? Because you're looking pretty good. If we didn't change much, you'd look pretty good on stage and they're like, just don't, it'll stress me if we try and vary too much. And uh, I have to agree. And I recently... Um, I had some posing uh, instructions off uh, consultation, sorry, with Jeff Alberts and mm -hmm. like the, the stage presentation, like, and if you go, you've been to shows, you've seen shows that it makes a huge difference when someone knows how to pose and they have stage presence, even in bodybuilding um, more so than I think a peak week can sometimes make. But um, yeah, if, if the, the listeners take anything away from that, not only is that an incredible amount of, kind of things going on there um i mean you've obviously you're incredibly intelligent you know what you're doing with all these little different factors and you've tried and tested it with so many different people that there is a lot to screw up so if people wanted to not screw up um just don't don't try and do too much um but like you said and testing it is so so vital and important and I know every time I've peaked, it's always been a slightly different outcome. You learn something different every time um, and it can be really kind of interesting. And I think the peak week is interesting, but sometimes too much importance can be placed on it. I guess you've seen that yourself mm -hmm. with some people and uh, yeah. with your own clients. So no, that's fantastic. And I did have, I had more contest prep specific areas to drop into, but I think We've already, I've kept you pretty much an hour and maybe that will give me an inlay to try and get you back on, um, which would be fantastic. I know the viewers would absolutely love that because, I mean, you're full of information, full of um, different studies, pulling those out that maybe people haven't thought of before. So I know I absolutely love it. So I have to say a massive thank you for you, Menno, for coming on and sharing your wisdom um, with us. And uh, if people wanted to reach out to you, um, or even I know you do consultations and things like that. I know my, my friend Rawdon, um, mm -hmm. you're, you've been on his podcast a few times. I think you did this, the seminars over in Australia and with him um, has mm -hmm. consultations from you. Where, where's people best to reach you or um, yeah, find out more about what you provide? Because I know you're releasing research articles. Um, but yeah, I'll let mm -hmm. you speak. <laughs> sure. Yeah, BeijingBodybuilding.com has everything. We're on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram and also some other social media, but we don't really uh, maintain those very well because they're not very active. I think fitness is uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook for the most part. So one of those or just BeijingBodybuilding.com, you'll find everything. Perfect. And well, like we said, you have coaching available, you have various services available to coaches um, to learn more about your methods. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I have to say, particularly Instagram and Facebook, where you have the infographics coming out with all your research and things is very um, 
kind of i mean it's thought provoking and interesting to see those coming out all the time so as a as a coach it's really great to see um yeah thank you once again and if people have got any kind of particular questions or things that they want to hear more about uh let me know and we can see what we can do um and yeah i'll, I'll speak to you guys soon sure it was my pleasure to be on the show man. Huh? cheers